Chapter Sixteen of the Short Stop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The Short Stop by Zane Gray. Chapter Sixteen. Last Innings It was Wednesday, following the great Saturday game. Chase hurried to his room, where he had taken Mitty after the accident. He found the lad sitting up, a little wan, but bright and expected. "'All over, Mitty!' shouted Chase. "'The season's over. The championship is ours. Today was the last game, and the directors made it a benefit for the team. Bully of them, wasn't it? No more in square!' The team's made barrels of money. What'd you do today? Oh, made Max sore, as usual. How? Well, we smothered Mansfield in an inning or so, and then Mac wanted us to lay down, strike out, make the game short. Now I'd have had to try to bing one, even if my life were threatened. So I caught one on the nose, and by George, Mitty, I hit it over the fence, and the ball broke a window in Mrs. McGee's house. Mac'll have to pay damages. Say, but wasn't he sore? That makes six homers for you, Chase, on our own grounds. And you've had fourteen triples and only three doubles. It's strange about that. Most fellers get more doubles, but you're so dang fast on your feet that you'd stretch most any double into a triple. Give me them long liner triples for mine. Mitty, how are you feeling? How about the banquet tonight? I'll go, you bet. I'd be out home long ago if you hadn't made me promise to stay here. Mitty, I've had some ideas working in my mind the last few days, and now everything's settled. You're going to live with me. Am I? began Mitty rebelliously. Yes. I've got a tin type of myself sponging off of you here. Not here, Mitty. I've bought that white cottage in the maple grove by the river, and I've had it all fixed up. It's now ready for the furnishings. In a few days, I'll write to Mother and Will to pack their duds and come on. Maybe we won't surprise them. You'll come out there and live with us. There's a dandy little room next to mine. It'll be yours. You like Will, and you love Mother. She's the sweetest. I ain't a-gonna do it, cried Mitty in a queer, strangled voice. The old, resolute strength had gone from it. Yes, you are. I'm big enough to carry you out there and tie you if necessary. And I've got another idea. You know that little alcove next to King's store? Well, there's one there. I've had a carpenter measure it, and he's going to build a wee little stand there. You and I are going into business. Cigars, tobacco, candy, etc. I furnish capital, you manage affairs, we divide profits. Why, it's a gold mine. There's not a place of that kind in town. Everybody knows you. Everybody wants to do something for you. Didn't you ever think of selling things? There's money in it. Chase, it'd be grand, said Mitty. I'll do it. I'll... Chase, if you ain't the best ever. But haven't you any ideas for yourself? Then Mitty Maru, the defiant, the Spartan lad, the sufficient unto himself, the scorner of emotions, the dweller in lonesome places, covered his face and sobbed as might any of the boys whom he ridiculed. But his weakness did not last long. Chase, 
I'll be dinged if that soak I got in the game Saturday hasn't given me softening of the brain, he said, and smiled through his tears. Chase had seen the light of that smile in his mother's eyes, and in the eyes of another of whom he must not think. For a moment a warm wave thrilled over him, and he felt himself sway beneath its influence. He had done his best for his mother. He had done right by Marjorie. He had waited and waited. So he made himself think of other things, of the new home, of peace for his mother, of ambition for Will, of companionship with Mitty, of his opening career. Come on, Mitty, we have to fix up in style for the dinner tonight, and it's time we were at it. When they reached the hotel, Mac made a grab for Chase and beamed on him. Chase, old boy, sure things are coming great. Cass goes to Cleveland for a tryout. I've sold Benny to Cincinnati and you to Detroit. Burke offered twelve hundred for you on Saturday, but I held out for fifteen, and I got the check tonight. I promised you one third if you hit four hundred, and you've gone and hit four sixteen. Chase, that's awful for a first season. You lead the league, and tomorrow you get your five hundred bucks. Burke wrote me to tell you he'd send the contract. He offers two thousand. So you're on, and I'm tickled to death. I've made a star of you, and you've made me a manager. Somebody else grabbed for Chase. It was Judge Meggs, who congratulated him warmly. Then Chase, with Mitty Maru hanging to his coat sleeve, was deluged in a storm of felicitations. The banquet room, with its long decorated table, brought a yell from the hungry ball players. The waiters began moving swiftly to and fro. The glasses clinked musically. The noisy hum of conversation and jest grew steadily louder and gayer. There were fourteen courses, and every player ate every course, except Benny, who got stalled on the unlucky thirteenth. Then chairs were shoved back and cigars lighted. Judge Meggs, who was Toastmaster, rose and spoke for a few moments, congratulating Findlay on her great ball team, and the directors on their prosperous season, and the players on having won the championship. At the close he ended with a neat presentation speech. Then before each player was placed a large colored box with a fitting inscription on the lid. Chase's was 416. Enoch's was Mugs Landing. Benny's was My Molly O. On Cass's was a terrible representation of a bulldog with the name Algy above, and below Cass's well-known What? And so on it went down the line. Inside the boxes were the purses, shares of benefit, presents from directors and from individuals. Chase won both hitting and base-stealing purses. Cass, the pitchers. Enoch, the fielders. Each got a silver watch, a gold scarf-pin, and link cuff-buttons. Each got cards calling for an umbrella, a hat, a Morris chair, a box of candy. All received different presents from personal friends and admirers. Chase was almost overcome to find that Judge Meggs and other friends had that very morning furnished his cottage completely. Then the Toastmaster interrupted the happy buzzings and called on Mac. The little manager bounced up with shiny face. He lauded Findlay and its generous citizens. He raved about the baseball team. 
he spouted over Cass and Benny, and almost ended in tears over Chase. "'Gentlemen,' said Judge Meggs impressively, "'we have with us tonight a remarkable ball-player and good fellow. He has captained the team with excellent judgment. He has been a great factor in our victory. We have expected much of him and have not been disappointed. We expect much of him tonight. For surely a man with his wonderful command of language, his startling originality of expression, and his powers of uninterrupted, flowing speech, such as we are all so happily familiar with, will give us a farewell word to cheer our hearts through the long winter to come. Gentlemen, Mr. Enoch Winters. Enoch rose as if some subterranean force had propelled him. His round red face and round owl eyes had their habitual expression of placid wisdom, but Enoch had difficulty with his vocalization. Gentlemen, he began, and then, it was evident, his voice frightened him. I, this, you see, he stammered, rolled up his tongue into his cheek to find his never-failing quid, this time failing him. Great honor, sure, I, we, appreciate. Then the voluble coacher, the bane of pitchers and umpires, the terror of the inexperienced, stammered that something was too full for words, and sat down. Whether he said stomach or heart, no one knew, but all assumed he meant the latter, and roared their applause. Judge Meggs, with a few fitting words, called upon Castorius, and Cass, of the iron arm, iron heart and voice, could not establish relations between his mind and his speech. Judge Meggs said, "'Gentlemen, we want to hear from our great second baseman, who, we are sorry to say, and happy also, will not be with us next season, for he is going higher up. We have heard of a yet better stroke of fortune that has befallen him. In brief, we understand that he has won from our midst one of Findlay's sweetest and best girls, and that the happy fulfillment of such good fortune is to be celebrated upon a day in the near future. We think he owes us something. Gentlemen, Mr. Benny Ross. No one ever had such friends, cried Benny dramatically. No one ever had such friends, and that was all he could say. Gentlemen, said Judge Meggs, we have with us tonight a lad who came to Findlay empty-handed, yet who brought much. We shall watch his future, as we have watched him develop here. And when he returns to Findlay, to become one of her solid, substantial businessmen, we shall not forget when he was a star of the diamond. Gentlemen, Mr. Chase Alloway. Chase managed to rise to his feet, but was utterly unable to respond. Emotion made him speechless. He smiled helplessly at Judge Meggs and sat down. The judge called upon several other players, and they, too, might as well have been dumb. Then Mitty Maru laboriously climbed upon his chair and raised his strange, shrunken figure. He put his right hand to his breast and beamed upon the company. "'Mr. Toastmaster and friends,' began Mitty, "'my worthy captain,' and fellow players are too full for utterance. Maybe the sparkling stuff in the long-stemmed glasses has tongue-tied em. Somebody must thank you gentlemen for this banquet, and it's up to me. 
If the basis was full now, we could feel sure of getting a hit, for we're sure long on hits and short on speeches. For the team, I want her say that this is a grand and glorious occasion, that Finley is the finest town in the U.S., that the directors and supporters of the team are real sports and good fellows, the best ever. This has been a great summer for all of us, and we've been happy. We're sorry it's over. Baseball players have to go from town to town, part from each other and kind friends, and I'm sure none of us will ever forget the fight we made for the pennant and the friends we made in good old Findlay. Right warmly did all join in applause. Then, after a parting word from the judge, good nights were spoken, and the banquet to the championship team was over. Before Chase went home, he wrote a letter to his mother, and told her, as he was still boss of the family, and disposed to become more so in the future, she and Will were to come to Findlay. They were to dispense with all the old useless furniture and belongings that would only have reminded them of past dark hours, and to come prepared for a surprise and future brightness. Chase slept poorly that night, and kept Mittie Maru awake, and in the morning got him out at an early hour to see the cottage. It seemed that a fairy's hand had been at work during the last forty-eight hours. The cottage was furnished from one end to the other, not poorly, nor yet lavishly, but in a manner that showed the taste of a woman and the hand of a man. Chase felt that someone had read his mind. Who had guessed which was to be his mother's room, and Will's, and his own, and therein placed such articles as would best please each? So Chase learned in another way that the needs of the human heart are alike in every one. That day he and Mitty loaded the pantry with all manner of groceries. Then, while Mitty went out to his old home in the brick kiln to fetch the few things he owned, Chase fitted up the little room next to his. When Mitty saw it, he screwed up his face and sat gingerly on the little white bed. I'll be dinged if it ain't swell. After this, Chase would have it that Mitty should go with him to a store and purchase a suit. Mitty submitted gracefully, and after a trying time in the store, he produced a dilapidated pocket-book and began to count out the price marked on the tag of the selected suit. No, you don't, said Chase. This is on me. Maybe you thought I was busted, replied Mitty with a smile. I ain't on my uppers yet, me boy. Never was much for style, but now, when the time comes, I can produce— Chase and Mitty were arguing the question when the storekeeper said they must regard the suit as a present, and refuse to be paid. "'What to L!' exclaimed Mitty. "'Have I been hitting the pipe?' That afternoon and evening were very long to Chase. He slept that night from sheer exhaustion. He was up with the sun, woke Mitty, whistled, sang, and consulted his watch every few moments. The train he expected his mother and Will on was due at ten o'clock. He packed his effects and sent Mitty for a wagon to take them to the cottage. Then he went, hours before train time, to the station, where he paced the platform. What an age it seemed! At last he heard the train whistle, and he trembled. He ran to and fro. Suppose they didn't come. With a puffing and rumbling, the engine slowed up and came to a stop. 
only two passengers got off, and upon these Chase swooped down like a hawk. He gathered the little woman up in his arms and smothered all her voice except my Chase. Hello, Will. How about college, old boy? You great brown giant? And that was all. Chase bundled them into a hack, and telling the driver where to go, he looked at his mother and brother, so as really to see them. How changed they were! His mother's face had lost its weary shade. She was actually young and pretty again. And Will, he was not the same at all. Bells of joy rang in Chase's heart. Then he began to talk, and he talked like a babbling brook. Baseball, the championship, his leading the league, his sale to Detroit, his many friends, about the certainty of Will's going to college, everything but where they were going. Then the hack stopped. Chase helped them out, and turning to the hackman, thanked him and held up a dollar. "'That's my treat,' said the hackman, tipping his hat. "'Say, isn't my money good around here?' demanded Chase. "'Your money's same as counterfeit and friendly. Good luck.' With a smile, the hackman turned his team and drove away. "'Chase, what a pretty place,' his mother said. "'Do you board here?' "'Well, not yet, but I hope to.' Chase opened the front door and ushered them in. A bright fire crackled in the open grate. "'Mother, this is home.' Then for a brief space the three mingled tears with their happiness, and at last the mother raised her face with a flush. How I have worried! For nothing! Chase called up the stairway. Mitty, come down. We have company. Then he whispered to them, Mitty is my little friend of whom I wrote. He's a hunchback. If you look at his eyes, you will never think of his deformity. Mitty came down without reluctance, yet shyly. The new suit considerably altered his appearance. Nevertheless, as always, he made a strange and pathetic little figure. He advanced a few steps, stopped, and waited, with his fine eyes fixed gravely and steadily upon them. "'I am very glad, indeed, to meet my son's friend, Mitty,' said Chase's mother. "'My name's Mitchell Malone,' answered Mitty, "'and I'm happy to know you and Chase's brother.' "'Mitty Maru he'll always be to me,' said Chase." "'Mother, he's going to live with us.' "'I have no home,' replied Mitty, to Mrs. Alloway's kind, questioning look. "'My parents are dead. I never saw them.' Then followed the pleasant task of showing the cottage and grounds. The day passed like a happy dream. At sunset, Chase slipped away from them and went down through the grove to the river. He was rejoicing in the happiness of others. Yet now that his hopes were realities, an unaccountable weight suddenly lay heavy as lead on his heart. He had succeeded beyond his wildest fancy. There was the cottage, and it contained his friend Mitty Maru, and Will, with the clear light of joy in his eyes, and his mother, well and happier than he had ever seen her. These were blessings such as he was sure he did not deserve but humble and thankful as they made him, he was not entirely content. Suddenly the glamour of all he had been working to accomplish paled in the moment of its achievement. The swift-flowing river murmured over stones and glided along the brown banks toward the setting sun. The song of the water was all the sound to break the silence. 
silver clouds and golden light lay reflected in the river, and slowly shaded as the sun sank. This hour, with its diminishing brightness, its slow approach of gray twilight, its faint murmuring river song, sadder than any stillness, singularly fitted Chase's mood. A shout from Mitty Maru brought Chase out of the depths. He answered and turned toward the grove. Mitty came hobbling with a celerity that threatened peril to the frail limbs so unaccustomed to such effort. "'Lock the gate!' he called out, waving a letter at Chase. "'Wonder who's writing me?' asked Chase, failing to note Mitty's agitation. "'That's Miss Marjorie's writin'. Chase's hands trembled slightly. Mitty's eyes were gloriously bright. "'Last innings,' sang out the lad. "'You waited it out, Chase.' and now's time to dig get up on your toes and run chase run as you never run turn in third in your life and when you reach home base and miss marjorie and score why why just give her one for mitty who umpired your game chase scarcely heard his little friend and did not see him hurry away toward the cottage for his eyes were now fixed on the opened letter this letter is as difficult to write now as it has been to keep from writing sooner. I have so much to tell you. Ever since you saved the geyser well, father has been on my side, and I persuaded him to take me to see that last Columbus-Findlay game. He had forgotten that he used to play ball when a boy, and it came back to him. First he grew excited, then red in the face, and he shouted till he lost his voice, before the game was half over, he turned purple. When you made that wonderful, wonderful hit, he smashed a hole right through his hat. Such a state he was in when we got home. His hat was a wreck, his coat must, his collar wilted, and his face all crimson. But I never saw him so happy, and even Mother's disgust at his appearance made no difference. I think, I am sure, we made life miserable for her. She said you might come to see me, and I say, come soon, Marjorie. End of chapter 16 The End of the Shortstop by Zane Gray Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA